You're listening to a series from the Book of Mark. Come and see, believe, and follow the Messiah from the Axis Church in downtown Nashville. For more audio and other resources, visit theaxischurch.org. I am uh, Derek, one of the pastors here at the Axis. I am not Jeremy, so if this is your first time, um, there are other people that uh, that teach and preach. Um, would you uh, get the get get me today? So. Praise God for that. It is good to be here, and I would encourage you to grab a Bible. If you don't have one um, nearby, there's also Mark Field journals back at this back table. We'll be in Mark chapter 4, as Daniel led us uh, in the reading this morning. Today is week 14 uh, in our study of the Gospel of St. Mark that we've we've entitled Messiah. If you weren't sure, we blew it up behind us here. Um, Messiah, this idea of seeing, believing, and following Jesus. Messiah is the Hebrew word for anointed one. In the New Testament, it's almost always translated in the Greek form, Christ. So when we say Jesus Christ, we're saying Jesus Messiah. Uh, Mark had a particular point of emphasis with his account of Jesus' life and work that is unique to him. Um, it's believed to have, he's believed to have been the first to put the gospel to paper. Mark was a close associate of both Peter and Paul, and it's understood that he compiled his gospel from gleanings from Peter's sermons in particular. His writing isn't necessarily chronological, historical narrative, but it is intentionally organized to tell the story of God's saving action through the life the ministry, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. Mark writes as a preacher, conveying the critical elements of the gospel as a theologian. He's arranging and interpreting the information to meet the needs of his readers. And his particular readers were Roman Christians. They, these are who he had in mind. And, and what he was on his mind that we can glean here from his gospel is that this separation of time and distance from many of the details around the context of Jesus' ministry and the gospel story um, was something he was wanting to kind of fill the, the blanks in. So Mark set out to describe the essentials of Jesus' story almost as an on-the-scene reporter might have presented them. In forceful, fresh, and immediate terms, we see this immediate word all the time. Um, like you'd expect from an eyewitness account, including the reactions of the crowds, we see this over and over where they marvel at him or they, 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 he, he kind of describes what they're thinking or feeling, the reactions of the disciples, the emotional responses of Jesus, and at times he even adre- directly addresses the reader, the hearer. He really wants us to immerse ourselves in this story, not just observe it casually from a distance. And so with that as kind of some background and some context, um, let's pray and then we'll dig in. Lord, you are the only one who can illuminate our hearts to the gospel and through the quickening of our dead souls and the transformation of our lives into Christ-likeness, you're doing this work. So please teach us to seek you. And as we seek you, show yourself new to us. We know we can't even look for you unless you show us how, and so we'll never find you unless you reveal yourself. So work in us a desire for you. Work in us to love you. Work in us to follow you. 
through Jesus Christ, the author and completer of our faith, we pray. Amen. Our passage today is a rare aside in the Gospel of Mark. While other Gospel writers devote significant portions to Jesus' teaching, this is not common with Mark. In fact, um, Mark tells us that Jesus taught frequently, but what he taught we find really only here in chapter 4 and then some in chapter 13. This morning we'll unpack the first of four parables that Mark includes in this teaching section. So let's dig in with Mark chapter 4, verse 1. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him. Now this, again, he began to teach um, is indefinite. It's likely not immediately following the interaction that we saw a couple of weeks ago with um, Jesus interacting with being called Beelzebul and his, his family thinking he's lost his mind. He just is taking this and he's putting it here for this purpose. Um, and so Jesus got into um, a boat and sat in it by, on the sea and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. This was for acoustics and for the crowd control. His influence was growing and we see that early on uh, in Mark, the first couple of chapters of Mark, there's some curiosity around his um, teaching and his popularity um, and then that's growing into some resentment and then all out hostility and he was teaching many things in parables Mark tells us Jesus often sought common everyday circumstances and objects to illustrate his teaching especially when discussing the kingdom of God it's worth noting that the use of parables while there are many there may be many details or few they're generally designed to drive home a singular point with the surrounding details being of less consequence so things like we'll see in this passage about the birds and the sun and thorns are just included mainly to add color so we don't read too much into some of those details or get hung up on hyperbole or exaggeration while where Christ places the emphasis in the telling of the story is what is most important. But we're going to make an interesting discovery, I think, in this particular passage because I think Jesus intends at least part of this um, parable to be layered, to have some layered meaning. And we're going to give, we'll be given a rare interpretation by the Lord himself just a few verses in, which is such grace. Back to verse um, 2. And in his teaching, he said, listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And Jesus is calling for our full attention here. He's saying, eyes in, lean in, listen, because I'm about to say something that you aren't going to want to miss. He was mindful that the meaning might not be obvious or easy to understand. And the story begins with a common experience to rural life in Palestine. The custom when farming was to scatter the seed in a broadcast fashion first, then followed by the plowing. The sower wasn't being haphazard. This is just the way it was done. But he says, no matter what I'm about to say, I'm encouraging you to hear this and to notice that what I'm saying. And so here's what he said in verse, eight, uh, verse four. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path. And the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, since it had no root, and it withered away. 
Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. Other seeds fell onto good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold, sixtyfold, and hundredfold. So in this telling, we see that the focus is on the sower scattering the seed. In a few verses, the emphasis will shift because, again, Jesus had a couple of audiences in mind here. Yet he bookends this parable, as is, with the command not to miss what he is communicating, that it's very important. And we see this in verse 9. So he begins with listen, and then he ends his story with he who has ears to hear, let him hear. For the average person in the crowd who might be paying attention, the big picture message is the kingdom of God has arrived. The Messiah has begun his work. The message is going out far and wide, and even with varied responses and opposition at times, the kingdom will expand and will produce the desired result. This is how Mark began his gospel. We saw that from the beginning where he says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then he introduces Christ immediately to us through his baptism, through the Father's acknowledgement of his work, through the temptation, and he comes straight out of that temptation wilderness experience preaching repentance and that the kingdom of God was here. Verse 10. And when he was alone, those around him, Jesus, with the twelve, asked him about the parables. So like the reader or hearer in Mark's time, Jesus' followers in the moment, we might even ask, why teach this way? Why stories and parables? Why not just tell us plainly? And Jesus' answer, I think, here is fascinating. Verse 11, he says to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. So here is the clue to the two audiences Jesus has in mind. Those who've been given insight into a mystery, something hidden previously from everyone, and those it remains hidden from. And that is, yes, the kingdom of God has arrived, but not in the way many expected. Those who are on the outside, as we've been reading about Jesus cleansing the lepers and healing people and inviting the outcasts into his inner circle, they're now being invited into this secret. But those who thought they had the inside angle were finding themselves now on the outside. See, the kingdom is something like a growing seed, like leaven working its way through the dough. It transforms the hearts of people who will then connect with each other through baptism and communion and will become the catalyst for transformation, generation to generation, constantly growing and expanding. Christ will indeed usher in a kingdom in power and great glory at the end of the age. But in the meantime, the blessings of that consummated kingdom are available to all of us right now, just not in the way it was expected. Even John the Baptist wrestled with this new paradigm of the kingdom. We read about this in Matthew chapter 11, verse 2. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples, and he said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? 
And Jesus answered, go and tell John what you hear and see. The Jews are being liberated from Roman occupation. All problems people face are being fixed across the board. All the bad people and the outcasts are getting what they deserve. And the temple in Jerusalem is now the capital of the world. That's not what he said. Actually, Jesus answered them. And he said, go tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. And the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up. And the poor have the good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. You see, Jesus did do and say very plain and obvious things. But it was offensive to so many who wanted an us versus them scenario where their enemies were relegated and they were affirmed in their practice and position. The religious leaders thought he was possessed by the devil. His family thought he was out of his mind. And because like them, we begin to deconstruct When our image of God, the image we have usually constructed, which is a mere reflection of our own self-image, doesn't hold up under the pressure of life. Our false image of God, who's a God that can only be recognized in the face of Jesus Christ, is what needs deconstruction in our hearts. Back to verse 11. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables so that they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand lest they should turn and be forgiven. Hardness of heart is a horrible thing. And the callousness that forms over time through persistent unbelief creates a barrier to being able to understand much less hear the truth of the gospel. Jesus is quoting a passage here from Isaiah chapter 6. It's a fascinating passage. It's where Isaiah sees, he has a vision, and your King Uzziah died, of the Lord high and lifted up, his, the train of his robe filling the temple. The angels crying out, holy, 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 in a way that shook the building he was in. All of his senses are engaged. He sees the Lord. He hears the roar of worship. He smells the fire burning. It says the temple was filled with smoke. His lips are touched with the coal. He tastes the burning. And John chapter 12 tells us that when Isaiah saw Jesus in this passage he spoke about him so when Jesus says there's there's some distinction here and who will understand he's he's not just quoting an old testament passage he's he's quoting himself this is the same Jesus but it's not a hopeless indictment that Jesus is making here That somehow that there are people beyond the reach of Christ. And so to make sure they don't come to the truth, he hides his words and cloaks his message of grace. 
But it is an acknowledgement that there are those whose response to his message of the kingdom is Jesus as Messiah, that that response may be rejection. Consider where Paul puts this in his broader narrative, right? This is immediately following his confrontation with the religious leaders where they accuse him of being Satan himself. In some ways, it may even be grace that led Jesus to teach this way. For those who responded to the command to really listen and pay attention, there was space for them to penetrate below the surface of the parable for deeper meaning. It kept some from repenting too quickly or carelessly before counting the cost. More than once, Jesus thinned the herd, so to speak, not because of hard hearts, but because of shallow hearts, hearts not ready. As the early church father Origen of Alexandria observed, sometimes Jesus covered up the deeper mysteries of the faith in veiled speech to those who were not yet ready to receive his teaching in straightforward terms. But for others, speaking in this way gave them an opportunity, which many of them took, to willfully turn a blind eye and a deaf ear to the truth of who Jesus was. They could continue to write him off as a as just speaking gibberish without adding to their own sin. As we noted, Jesus is quoting from Isaiah chapter 6 here, and the context is dire. Immediately following Isaiah seeing the Lord high and lifted up, he's given a word. He says, who will go and speak for me? And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. God's anger is kindled, and the sin of his people will be dealt with. And in verse 11, Isaiah hears this indictment, hears this word from God, and he says, how long? And God says, until they are broken of their hardness of heart and stubborn pride. But there's a promise, always, embedded in, chapter, or in verse 13 of Isaiah chapter 6. God promised a holy seed that would emerge from the rubble. Because of Jesus, no one is beyond the reach of the mercy of God. Because of Jesus, we can observe the scorched earth of God's wrath at Golgotha without having to endure it ourselves. Isaiah 6.13, and though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felt. The holy seed is its stump. There is always hope if I humble myself. The holy seed is what remains in the aftermath of the utter destruction of myself. But I must die to myself. Galatians 2.20 puts this in some context. I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Then Jesus gets on to his disciples just a little bit in verse 13. And he said, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? He's been preaching repentance and the coming kingdom, the gospel. He has chosen 
men and women to learn from him and be empowered by him. They have already been witnesses to his miracles, his teachings, his confrontations with his enemies. And he has instructed everyone within earshot to pay close attention to what he is saying. Expected certain audiences to miss it due to ignorance or even arrogance. But surely his own followers would pick this up. But they had failed to heed the command to listen. And I'm very grateful that Jesus doesn't throw up his hands with them or with me and tell them that they're on their own to figure it out. I do wonder what might have been distracting them, clouding their thinking, getting in the way, making their minds trail off while he's talking. I don't always think it's sinful, selfish things that cause this. It makes me think of the way Mary and Martha approached their time with Jesus. We read about this in Luke chapter 10. Martha had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with, many, with much serving. And she went up to him and she said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. I've done that. I've gone and tattled to the Lord on people before. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. And Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. Still, when Jesus asked, how then will you understand all the parables, an important element of the answer was included in the statement, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. How will any of us understand anything that he's saying? Only if he helps us. Jesus is the gift given and the gift giver. He is the mystery revealed and the mystery revealer. He is the creator and the ruler and the sustainer and the cultivator and the culminator of all things. The kingdom, and he makes it plain to me as I sit at his feet. And he made it plain to them with an explanation and a shift in, this, in the emphasis of the parable to drive his point home. In verse 14, he says, The sower, Jesus, sows the word, the gospel of the kingdom, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. Remember, the parable was initially focused on the sower and the seed, the first time he told it, emphasizing the coming kingdom, the advancement, regardless the condition of the soil. It's happening, and it won't be stopped. But as Jesus unpacks this for his followers, the emphasis clearly shifts to the readiness of the soil and the reception of the seed. And he's given us a clue into why not everyone hears and responds the same way at the same time. And this applies to the first time we hear the gospel, accept it and obey it, and every time since. As we read in verse 15, at least one reason the word of Christ doesn't stick is that it gets stolen. Give him an inch, and Satan acts like a ruler. Be on your guard, the scripture says. Resist the devil. 
Our battle is not against flesh and blood. We don't give any occasion to him. God knows what I've missed over the years because I've lived a defeated life, surrendering to the wiles of the devil, having a form of godliness but denying the power available to me as Paul talks about in 2 Timothy, truth going in one ear and out the other while I danced with sin. And I think that's one of the main ways that the word gets stolen from us is that we're not ready because we're not repentant. And Satan takes, that, takes advantage of that every time. Verse 16, and these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who when they hear the word immediately receive it with joy, have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. And then when tribulation or difficulty or persecution or resistance arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. Another reason the word of Christ doesn't stick is that I'm too eager and I move on too quickly. The truth doesn't bake into my heart. The resistance we feel within our own hearts and from others are traps that cause us to stumble. They're rarely obvious, which is why the psalmist cries out in Psalm 141, Psalm 31, Psalm 37, keep me, help me from the trap that is set for me. We get tested, and the soil of our heart is too shallow. And beloved, I think this happens when, and has happened to me, when I try to apply the truth to my life instead of applying my life to the truth. And there's a big difference between taking something that I sounds good and trying to make it fit versus taking my life and dying and making it conform to all of God's word. Verse 18, and others are the ones sown among thorns. They're those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Third scenario that keeps the word of Christ from sticking, to use some axis lingo here, we don't fight the drift. Anxieties that arise from the times that we live in, so we don't have peace. Money that amounts to a false sense of security, so we aren't as generous and dependent as we could be. And pleasures that promise to satisfy, so we serve ourselves and then marvel at the consequences. It's playing the game. These get the best of us. And it's not living in the world that trips us up. It's buying into what's being sold. Adopting the lie. It's saying that we're devoted to Jesus, but at the end of the day, I'm really devoted to me. We should be careful not to place the blame on what we possess or our circumstances, but on our own deceitful hearts and our distractions. When our feelings and our freedoms and our preferences are chief, we become distracted and complacent and preoccupied. We search for meaning, for purpose, for identity, for happiness in a career, in a hobby, in a person, in a habit, in a degree. Just the right house, just the right car, just the right relationship, 
just the right church, just the right feeling. Brothers and sisters, it is possible to live in this world and not be choked by its cares. It is possible to be prosperous and not corrupted by riches. It is possible to be human and not controlled by your passion or your pleasure. Verse 20, but those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. We have a responsibility to listen and respond with a willing heart and a submissive will. If we've been given the gift of the secret of the kingdom, then we must take Jesus' lordship to heart. The word of Christ must be received and applied because all scripture points to him. In Luke 24, at the beginning, and beginning, this is describing Jesus' teaching after his ascension, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was written in all the scriptures about himself. It all points to him. And so if you're not a Christian, everything hinges on the condition of your heart. At this time, the offer of the kingdom is available by invitation only. Are you curious, intrigued? Pray for understanding and ask questions. And we're here for that purpose. Are you resistant, skeptical? Think about these things. That's how one becomes a Christian. And we're here and willing to talk about these things with that, about that with you too. But Christian, what is keeping you from seeing and believing and following Messiah in power and peace? What is keeping us from abiding, from receiving and obeying his word? A heart that is truly open and receptive results in fruit that is produced naturally. And we read about this fruit in Galatians 5, this fruit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So this isn't about us trying harder to live a virtuous life. I used to think that. I used to actually teach each of those words, like we break those things down and how can you be more loving and how can you be more joy-filled and how can you be more peaceful? Until I realized these aren't things I can conjure. These are things that happen as I walk with Jesus and listen to his word and let that transform me. Then I find myself more patient, more kind, more self-controlled. But I have to die, not try harder. This is his work. It was his work that opened our eyes to the mystery of the kingdom to begin with. It is his word of truth that is the seed. It is Jesus that sows it in our hearts. And the growth and the harvest are his work too. So what is our part? What makes the word stick? What are the conditions of good soil? He tells us. Those who hear the word, he says, listen, pay attention, look here, Heed what I'm saying, notice it, and then accept it. You have been given the secret, and then bear fruit. Be open and receptive to the word, neither hard 
or shallow or preoccupied. For when the truth penetrates our heart, it produces a fruitful harvest of righteousness. And so my appeal to us this morning is not that we try to hear better or to be better soil or to try harder to produce fruit, as I mentioned. Rather, my appeal to us is to trust the sower. Believe that Jesus will make all things plain to you. Yield the soil of our hearts to him and tend your heart to be receptive. How do we tend? We tend it by prayer. We tend it by prayer. This is really our only weapon against Satan who very quickly wants to come and snatch away what God is saying. We pray against the traps that are set for us. We pray for help to purposefully throw off distractions that we would endure by faith. Yesterday, I was meditating on the passage where the disciples were arguing amongst themselves who was the greatest. And Jesus gets a little frustrated with that. He grabs the little child and he sets him. He says, those of you that unless you come to me as this little child, you will not enter in the kingdom of heaven. And as I'm thinking about this and I'm kind of meditating on this and praying through this, my mind is going a hundred directions. And I just remember thinking, I, and I, 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 skimmed, I scanned over it, and then I'm starting to move on, and I, remember, I just remember thinking, I need to hear, there's something here I need to hear. And it, there was a battle of everything that I thought I needed to do that day. I was thinking about um, some work stuff. I was thinking about some relational stuff. I was, and it was fascinating how quickly all of that just flooded into my mind. And I'm reading the words and, and none of them are going in. And that happens to us all the time. And we have to recognize that for what it is. That's spiritual warfare. And I have the opportunity in that moment to fight. To fight for what is it he's trying to say to me. Clear my mind. So I pray. I spend, I can spend time in the word directly. This is how I tend to the soil of my heart. Not just spending time with others and what they have said about it. This is really the only way that the word of God moves from platitudes to power. About 10 years ago, I got very frustrated with my own fruit. (laughs) I was not loving and joyful and peaceful and self-control. And I was striving very hard to be a better person. And when I evaluated my life, I thought, I'm doing the things Christians do. I'm a professional Christian. Like I was being paid by the church to be a Christian and to be a minister, and it was empty. And I found myself being very, as I as I looked at my life, I found myself having uh, just, all of my nourishment, my spiritual nourishment, was coming from what other people were saying. I had become a student of teachers, but not a student of the word itself. I had never read the Bible through, and I was frustrated. And I thought, and I I was thinking about this for this morning, I thought, you know, I think that's a, a lot of how the religious leaders of Jesus' day and the Pharisees were. They had gotten so removed from the actuality of God's word and the power of his word and who he really was. And they were so focused on all of the things that were said about 
his word. Remember Jeremy talking about this a few weeks ago and Pastor Don as well. All of these layers, hundreds and hundreds of other rules and other things to know stacked around the core of what is true. And that's why I think it surprised the um, scribe when they asked Jesus to tell him what is the most important commandment and Jesus was able to distill it so quickly just the central element. We love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we love our neighbors, ourselves. This is it. And I think it took the breath away. And it was when I started recognizing that God's word with his spirit make his people. And I started to believe that and trust that, that things began to change in my heart. To really understand the gospel, I have to immerse myself in it. To really know Jesus and return a harvest, I have to read it and let Jesus speak to me. To really experience a peace-filled and rewarding life, I must be guided by his word. And lastly, we, we fight the drift. We go to war. We recognize that this word that's coming to me is being choked out, it's being stolen, it's being, it's dying too quickly on the vine. The Apostle Paul drives this point home for us in Hebrews chapter 2. He, he deals with this as well in Colossians chapter 1, but in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, he says, therefore, and he has just got done speaking of Christ's supremacy and his work. He says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention. Does that sound familiar to what we just read? Listen to this. Tune into this. Pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Verse 3, Hebrews 2, how shall we escape How can we overcome? How can we get through this if we neglect such a great salvation? This this truth that transforms me and changes me, that saved me once, is saving me and will save me again in in the last day. This was declared first by the Lord himself. It was attested to those by uh, who heard it. These are the gospel writers. And God bore witness by signs and wonders and miracles through the historical testimony of the apostles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will at Pentecost and in our own experience. And then verse 17, and Jesus, he had to be made like his brothers, you and me, in every respect so that he might become a merciful, compassionate, faithful trustworthy high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for our sins, for the sins of the people. This is the gospel. He makes atonement for me. He makes a way. This is what I've got to immerse myself in. This is what all of the scripture is pointing to and reminding me of. Verse 18, for because he himself has suffered, he's gone through this. When he was tempted and tried and tested, he is able to rescue, aid, and relieve those of us who are going through testing and trial. In love, he saved you. He absorbed the wrath we all deserve. He forgave our sins. And he continues 
to save and to rescue and to help. God forbid that we would allow the soil of our hearts to ignore or neglect this life-changing truth. So you're not alone. We get to grow with other people who are walking with Jesus. We're part of a larger crop. We're parts of a living body. Stones in a new temple. And we spend time with each other encouraging each other in the word that is transforming us. That's, a, that's part of what Access Communities are about. That's part of what discipleship cohorts are about. That's why our structure, our model behind a discipleship cohort is direct engagement with the scripture. And how do, what is the saying? Am I hearing it and am I obeying it? Am I walking with it? And Gordon's going to be leading um, some time this Sunday and two Sundays from now on kind of how to do that and how to unpack the word in a way that has direct impact on my heart. But Jesus is always ready to help. We are not alone. And it, we can stay humble, but not despairing. And I, th I thought about this. How, how do I... I don't want my heart to be soil that doesn't receive and doesn't produce a crop. And I would just encourage you that all of Jesus' disciples reflected each of these soil types at times. Even after this teaching, even after he tells them point blank, this is what I'm talking about. Satan sifted some of them. Some fell away when things got hard. Others were distracted by circumstances and were deceived by monetary things. I think that's what got to the core of Judas's heart. Yet most of this same group went on to produce a crop. And I know this because we're in this room today. That's a crop that goes way beyond 30, 60, or 100. And just like them, we need the uncreated energy that communion and union with Christ provides for the transformation that we need and the fruit that he demands. So let's, let's do that now. Let's share a communion meal together, remembering Jesus as the Messiah his perfect work and his all-sufficient sacrifice and let his word settle into us. Let's pray. Lord, we need your grace to have ears that hear and eyes that see and hearts and minds that understand. For this is the only way for us to turn to you and be healed. Would you make our hearts fertile soil to receive the gospel afresh this morning? And will you be present with us in the broken bread and the poured out wine? And we worship you now and forever. Amen. Communion servers will be positioned on both sides of the platform. There is a station here in the back um, with some prepackaged cups available uh, as well. And as we read in the scriptures on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup. And he said, this is the new covenant in my blood poured out for you. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Beloved, these are the gifts of God for the people of God, and we proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. And may the blessing of God the Father Almighty, Son, and Holy Spirit be on this time of communion and remain with us always.
Amen. You may come when you're ready. You've been listening to a sermon from the Axis Church in downtown Nashville. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org.